Welcome to episode five of the Global Startup Movement's six-week activation of the MENA startup ecosystem. This community activation is an interactive digital gathering of the Middle East and North Africa startup ecosystems and consists of a six-episode podcast miniseries concurrently running alongside a six-week live stream pitch competition, which will both culminate in an interactive virtual summit on February 16th. Visit ecosystemarabia.tv to drop in your email and register today. An ever-growing number of founders across the MENA region are building tech-enabled for-profit companies. So how should these companies be funded? What's the difference about operating in MENA versus Silicon Valley or London? And what different types of capital and investment fund structures are most appropriate for the region? These are questions that we're exploring on today's episode of the podcast. And a special thanks to our presenting partner, the Export-Import Bank of the United States. As the global middle class grows and technology makes the world smaller, opportunities have never been greater for American businesses to reach customers beyond the U.S. border. Exim provides federal resources to access capital and mitigate foreign risk. And no business is too small. Let Exim help you export fearlessly to the MENA region and beyond. Visit exim.gov slash MENA to learn more. I often ask my students where they think the venture capital model originates from. And generally, I get an answer that it's Silicon Valley. The reality is that its history is much older. That's Alex Lazaro. Alex is a venture capitalist with Cafe Innovation, a global venture capital platform, as well as the author of Out Innovate, how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. In fact, it comes from a totally different industry in a totally different place. It is from New Bedford, and it's for the whaling industry. that globally, 70% of the world's whaling industry was dominated by one country, the US, and actually 70% of that was one town, New Bedford. And it's because of a financing innovation that they created, where merchants, our modern day venture capitalists, got investment from a range of folks and invested in a portfolio of boats headed by captains. Captains are modern day entrepreneurs who hired a crew. The crew was mostly paid for by the winning, paid by the winnings um, of the hunt. The captains put in some amount of money to set up the boats and had investment. And, and the reason we call it carried interest today is literally because it was what you carried off the boat before. And that model was adapted incredibly su- successfully to the Silicon Valley model, where we now fund startups through venture capital firms. And as we see the world of innovation scaling, what we see is that the VC model that has worked extraordinarily well in Silicon Valley also needs some adaptation to the different context of how it works and how it plays out in ecosystems where there is less capital, where it takes longer to exit, where there are more macroeconomic shocks, or where the path to scaling a business just looks different. And so we're at a point where I think the current model is going to continue to be relevant. And of course, I'm a VC and I'm biased and I think it can be a powerful tool. But I also think we're at a point where we're going to see some evolution in the range of tools and the range of structures for investment to startups going forward. And this is a key theme that we've explored many times on the show in the past. Copy and pasting the Silicon Valley venture model to emerging economies is insufficient in addressing some of the realities of the ecosystems. And this is especially the case for the MENA region. The differences are many. You know, of course, there's less capital. There is less depth of trained startup human capital. I believe talent is distributed evenly, but opportunity is not. 
and there isn't the same same army of been there, done that startup executives. There are more macroeconomic shocks. There's a whole range of the innovation culture that is being developed, but tolerance towards risk and, and ability to start and, and that being tolerated as a, as a career option. Those things, those dynamics just look different around emerging ecosystems and specifically in the Middle East. And so how does the venture capital model get evolved or change for the reality of building companies in emerging markets where timelines should be longer, where there might be less capital, and where the nature of the business model might be different? We're seeing evolutions in the venture model. And, and by the way, these are still very early evolutions. And I expect that as we see this in 10 years, it'll be much more meaningful. But we're seeing evolutions in one, who the players are. It isn't just VCs, but in many emerging ecosystems, we're seeing the rise of corporates and, and impact investors and others. Second, the types of products being used. So instead of just the preferred equity investment as is the mainstay of venture, we're also seeing some attempts around different types of investments, notably revenue shares, which derives inspiration from a completely different industry, not whaling, but mining and the royalty payments. Third, we're seeing evolutions in how VC funds are structured. Think of long dated investment structures, longer than the 10 year structure, or even evergreens. And a lot of these are in the early innings. And I expect that when I write the sequel of the book, Out Innovate, we'll see many of these becoming mainstays and perhaps some others not working out. Expectations from regional fund managers need to be different for their startups. The MENA environment isn't necessarily conducive to creating 100x unicorns. So instead of VC funds in the region looking for that one unicorn in the portfolio that will provide their limited partners with the proper venture return, Alex has a different view of the type of startup that VCs in the region should be looking for and encouraging. In Silicon Valley, we have this obsession with a unicorn, which is a business that is rooted in a philosophy of growth at all costs. Um, in an ecosystem where there's lots of capital, high tolerance for risk, et cetera, in many parts of the world, that model is not appropriate. And I believe that entrepreneurs should be camels instead of unicorns. The camel is still a startup that wants to grow and build, but they do it from a position of sustainability and resilience. The reason I chose the camel, it's an animal that can, when times are good, drink water faster than almost any other animal on the planet and sprint across the desert. But when times are tough, it can hunker down, it can survive, and it exists all over the world. And by the way, unlike the precious unicorn, um, is real and present all over the world. And camels do three things simultaneously. First, they build on a foundation of sustainability and resilience. So they have sustainable unit economics. Second, they can choose to raise venture capital, but they grow um, while also managing burn. And they raise for specific purposes. It isn't the default assumption that they have to. Um, and third, they take a long-term view to how they build and scale their business over time. And those three defining characteristics of the camel also mean that when times are tough, they will survive and over time scale and succeed. And COVID-19 has been a confirmation of Alex's thesis as startups who hadn't yet found product market fit were faced with increasing uncertainty and decreasing runway, while startups who had already solved the key digital pain point for customers experienced huge spikes in demand and increasing interest from VCs. I think the word unicorn is numerically a billion dollar business, but it comes with this philosophy on how you build a business, which is this growth at all costs philosophy. And I think camels are also hoping to build and scale very successful businesses. And I think that philosophy on how to scale is applicable to all businesses and all innovation entrepreneurs. I think the growth at all costs model has been applied 
far too liberally in startup land. There's this notion that you have to blitz scale. I think the blitz scaling model makes sense for a certain type of business, right? I think there's a very narrow set, and, and this is this is as the book talks about uh, around blitz scaling. You know, some some markets are winner takes all and have very comp- uh, very heavy competition with heavily funded capital. And if you don't win a winner takes all market, you will lose the the entire thing. And so in that in that context, it actually could make sense. I think the reality is far fewer models and markets are truly winner takes all. And so I think we've extended that model far too widely to the reality of startup ecosystems and founders operating in them in most of the world. Um, so I actually believe this camel approach can underpin growth and development startups anywhere. One of the entrepreneurs I invested in um, talked about how the tail should not wag the dog um, when thinking about venture capital. And, and what he meant was it shouldn't be the venture capital or the funding mechanisms available that dictate the firm strategy. It should be the firm strategy that dictates the type of capital that um, is offered. And so I think that there is room for traditional venture capital. And of course, I'm biased. I'm a venture capitalist. But I think that we need a broader set of options for entrepreneurs building a broader set of businesses. One of the tools that I think is interesting is revenue-based financing, which unlike its uh, traditional VC model takes its roots from another industry, um, not whaling, but the mining industry, which also is high risk. And in mining, they use royalty payments. And that's in many ways what the revenue financing mechanism does is it is taking a royalty, a percentage of revenues over a fixed amount of time um, as a payback to a certain investment today. And that can work really well for businesses where, you know, this might not be seeking the um, winner takes all blitz scaling approach and where perhaps it's a little bit more self-funded or where founders want more control of the business or what have you. And I think that'll be one tool in a range of different things that we're going to see a greater offering for entrepreneurs over time. One of the observations that I've seen for the first time, specifically the last year, that we're seeing uh, homegrown Saudi-based startups that are now scaling uh, regionally and globally. This is His Excellency Dr. Nabil Koshak, the CEO of Saudi Venture Capital Company. And this comment is one of the main reasons why Alex's thesis of camels over unicorns is super important for the region's entrepreneurs to grasp. In order for entrepreneurs to reach venture scale, they must find product market fit across multiple markets in the region which introduces market fragmentation challenges that makes the scale-up phase particularly risky and challenging for mina focus entrepreneurs. And even when entrepreneurs do successfully navigate the scale-up phase, the venture ecosystem needs startups in their portfolio to have proper exit options in order to return money to LPs and to create more success stories in the region. Specifically, the last few years, there has been a number of exits. I know that the number... Uh, is not as uh, expected, but I think it, it's evolving, uh, and also we're seeing more of M&A activities are evolving. So I think there was an awareness of the importance of M&A as a strategic move for a couple of corporate and uh, family offices that wasn't the scene, and now it's evolving. And uh, I see that the, at least the last three years there was more than twenty plus exits happening. So that's actually also stimulating uh, uh, more investors to invest in, in, in funds or investor in, in venture investment. Although I think definitely the also there is an update in terms of exit through an IPO. So there was the new regulations for direct listing. There was also uh, the parallel market, which is called NUMO, 
in Saudi Arabia that has less requirements. It's tra transitional, I would say, listing uh, before going to the main market. So I think these updates and upgrades in, in the capital market authority regulations are really encouraging uh, a couple of startups to think of IPO as an option for exit. And we are expecting things to happen, I would say, 2021 with this update in, 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 the, in the regulations and the regulatory environment. Venture capital as an asset class has gained huge momentum over the past few years in the MENA venture capital ecosystem. But venture returns are still mostly unproven in the region, while returns for more traditional assets such as real estate and oil are still high yielding and in most cases much less risky. So I asked Dr. Koshek what he thought was needed to activate more and friendlier venture funds in the region. I think the deal flow creation activities needs to be re-engineered. Really, this is crucial and important for the success of the entrepreneurs as well as the success of the investors investing in these startups. Luckily, actually, the last few years, we are having, I think, enough risk capital, at least from my point of view. But we need to balance the availability of risk capital versus the availability of quality investable startups. So I think we need to redesign some of the incubation activities within Saudi Arabia to make sure it's really producing quality, I would say, MVPs. Also, we need to have more of quality accelerators that produces quality uh, investable startups. There are actually some um, efforts scattered, but I think it's not up to the, uh, uh, I would say, the appetite happening in venture investment, including local investors as well as FDIs. And I think to balance the availability of venture uh, capital funding available by individuals as investors or by fund managers. We need to balance also between uh, the, the availability of quality investable deals. And in order to, to, to enhance the pipeline, I think we need to have more of investor-backed programs because they will have a skin in the game and they will make sure that these the deals coming out of these programs are quality deals, are quality investable deals also. As with everything in life, honest judgment on progress is relative. And despite the challenges, MENA's ecosystem builders should be proud of the progress made over the past decade. And according to Magnet's 2021 MENA Venture Investment Report, the MENA startup ecosystem saw for the first time over a billion U.S. dollars invested across 496 deals in 2020, which is a 13% increase in total funding from 2019, even despite COVID-19. We've seen a boom in the number of investors. This is Omar Christides, the founder and CEO of Arabnet. Omar and his team organized some of the largest conferences in the MENA region focused on digital business and the startup ecosystem. When we started our event in 2010, there was maybe a dozen investors in the region. I think at the latest version of our report, we're saying there was 15 investors in, in, in 2010 or so. By last year, there were over 200 investors in fact. We've seen a 20x increase in the number of investors over, over the last 10 years. And across the board, uh, from growth funds, VC funds, uh, accelerators, early stage, angels, uh, we're seeing family offices get involved. And most importantly for me today, we're seeing the governments really push these programs for funds of funds to to push even more funding. So you've got Waha Fund in Bahrain, you've got a fund of funds structure in Saudi Arabia, you have one in, in Abu Dhabi with Mubadala. 
You have the Circular 331 in Lebanon. You have innovative startups from in Jordan, $100 million. That's crazy. And the MENA region, especially the Gulf, boasts some of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world, with 20 funds from the region appearing amongst the 79 largest funds in the Sovereign Wealth Fund Institute's annual rankings. I think we're going to have plenty of funding. I'm not too worried about that. That would be my kind of short-term thinking about this. Patient capital, that's another, another question. Growth stage capital is another question. So when we're talking about a $40, $50 million round, we're still seeing these rounds being led by companies outside the region. Vostok Ventures, General Atlantic did the most recent deal of Property Finder. So that's an area where there would still be need. Um, but I think funding is doing well. The amount of money in public sovereign wealth funds has the potential to truly drive the region into the future, but it's never a good idea for the public sector to invest directly into startups. And this is why a fund of fund structures is one of the best ways to allocate this capital into the innovation space. Certainly the fund of fund structures in the region, I think right now those are the biggest initiative, if I think like where I see it's, it's everywhere, a fund of fund structure. And how those fund of funds get implemented, regulated, governed, will really affect the success of these programs. And we've seen fund-of-fund structures in lots of countries. And so this is somewhere where I think different countries are doing it in different ways. Lebanon did this, did it through the, 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 the banks themselves, who the banks invested in the VCs, the central bank guaranteed the investment of the banks. In Saudi Arabia, it's slightly different. They're saying, you know, we give you money as part of your fund, but you have to spend that certain dollar amount here. In, in Bahrain, they're saying you have to establish a local office, or at least have someone contribute to the local ecosystem. But I think we need to look at international models for how to make these a success. And I would say the most important thing is that the government should not be a player. They should be an enabler, but not an operator. Scarce funding environments can encourage and embolden resilient entrepreneurs. But in order to provide a competitive ecosystem that's on par with global tech hubs like Silicon Valley, London, and Beijing, more private and public capital still needs to be strategically and appropriately activated. However, our next featured guest has a third P to add to the list that has the potential to serve as an even bigger pool of funding. See, look, in this day and age, you know, capital is becoming more and more fungible. This is Badr Jafar, an Emirati business executive and social entrepreneur based in the UAE. What I would very much like to see more of is private capital work alongside public capital and the missing P, which is philanthropic capital, working towards the same common purpose and same common goal. Bader has written extensively about how too much philanthropy in the MENA region is too isolated and too secret. And in order to further develop his thesis around this, in 2020, he became the founding patron of the Center for Strategic Philanthropy based at the University of Cambridge, which is dedicated to enhancing the impact of strategic philanthropy both within and from the world's fastest-growing economies. There is trillions of dollars of philanthropic capital that is increasingly looking to invest more strategically. Obviously, they're not expecting, or the nature of that capital is, it doesn't demand necessarily a return on a financial return on capital, but it certainly demands and increasingly demands uh, a return on capital, a measurable and transparent social return, the ba- you know, it's bang for its buck. Uh, and I think there is more and more opportunities to lend that money alongside private capital into these business models, into these new business models, entrepreneurial business models, innovative business models, 
to try and tackle the same problems, the same causes that they both are established to tackle. In 2019, the total assets of foundations for the first time ever exceeded one trillion U.S. dollars. This is an enormous untapped pool of money that, with the right regulation and incentive structure, can be activated to catalyze economic development in frontier and emerging markets. Between two, two billion Muslims in the world, and the, and the aggregate GDP of Muslim the countries is north of twenty trillion. So, as a percentage, it's less than five percent of GDP, and and, and U.S. philanthropy is also five six percent of GDP. The question is, where is this money going? Well, it's all supposed to be going to do good, right? And that's that's its purpose. I would argue that a lot of it, even despite its good intentions, ends up not doing very good, or in some cases doing bad, because it finds its way into the wrong, into the wrong hands. But imagine we're able to align and and combine this huge sum, or even a small percentage of use. Imagine I told you, say, of that trillion dollars, two hundred and fifty billion is from the from the Middle East. Okay. Let's say I was to, to convince 10% of that capital to invest in entrepreneurial solutions that, that are uh, solving social problems. That's $25 billion a year that's going to go into that ecosystem. You know, you know what difference that'll make here? The question is, is it risk capital? Yes, of course it's risk capital. But also when I go and invest in a, you know, in a, in a non-profit, an NGO or a charity, it's also risk because I don't know exactly the return on that capital. Just because they have charities listed off them, why does that mean that they're going to generate much better or much more efficient social impact and return? Arguably, those businesses that are going to become sustainable are sustainable. So, so I, it's a one-shot investment. And they're going to keep doing it forever if they, if they do it well. Whereas with the charity, I need to keep putting money. I'm not criticizing charity. I'm just saying there's different ways to obtain objectives. Thanks for tuning in to episode five of our six-episode podcast mini-series on the MENA startup ecosystem. Today, we unpacked the three sources of capital that can be activated to catalyze startups in the region, public, private, and philanthropic. All three are equally important and impactful when deployed in the right structure and with the right incentives. Next episode, the final episode of our community activation before the virtual summit on February 16th, we take the conversation one step further and dive deeper into how the global MENA diaspora can best support the ecosystems back home. And a special thanks to our presenting partner, the Export-Import Bank of the United States. As the global middle class grows and technology makes the world smaller, opportunities have never been greater for American businesses to reach customers beyond the U.S. border. Exim provides federal resources to access capital and mitigate foreign risk. And no business is too small. Let Exim help you export fearlessly to the MENA region and beyond. Visit exim.gov slash MENA to learn more.